welcome to Career Chat, where we discuss career stories to help find a path for you. I'm your host, Andrea LeBaron, and it's my goal to help you find meaningful work. Josh Allen first became interested in spooky stories as a kid when he and his dad watched The Twilight Zone together. But it wasn't until much later, when he was camping with a group of boys and told them scary stories around the campfire, that Josh recognized his desire to write them too. Now a published author and English professor, Josh writes spooky stories for middle grade readers and shares why he's so passionate about combining this age group with the horror genre. We discuss the craft of writing, the value of getting an MFA, why fiction is good for us, and what we can learn about our own need to practice bravery during these uncertain times. Join me. Welcome to Career Chat, Josh. It's really great to have you. It's um, such a pleasure. Could you introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, my name is Josh Allen, and I am an English professor at BYU-Idaho. I've been teaching creative writing and composition and literature classes here for almost 18 years, and I am also an author of two books. I write middle grade fiction. Middle grade is for readers aged around 8 to 13, about about that age group, and I write middle grade horror, so I've published two collections of horror stories for kids. The first one is titled Out to Get You, 13 Tales of Weirdness and Woe, and it contains zany stories about things like the haunted paper towel dispenser in the boys' bathroom, or the haunted creepy street sign that a child has to pass every day on his walk to school. It came out in 2019, and um, my second book is titled Only If You Dare, 13 Stories of Darkness and Doom. It came out in August and includes stories about horror at the middle school Valentine's Dance, which seemed like the most natural place for horror that I could think of. <laughs> um, yes. There's a, a story that I get a lot of feedback on. I get a lot of comments on. There's a story about the world's grossest bowl of oatmeal that people talk to me a lot about. And uh, so kind of zany, quirky stories. I'm working on a third collection right now. I'm hoping to finish a draft of in the next couple months. Um, No title for it yet, but today I'm working on a really creepy story about a Pop-Tart. I want to write a really creepy story about a Pop-Tart. So that's the kind of thing that I do, the kind of weird, zany thing that I do when it comes to my writing for kids. Oh, and I I should also point out, Both of my books, Out to Get You and Only If You Dare, feature covers which glow in the dark. Yes, that is one of those really awesome things that middle graders totally go for. (laughs) My publisher's Um, idea. I can take no credit at all. (laughs) Well, it's brilliant. I think that is great. And I just wanted to um, highlight, I, I really wasn't aware of these awesome books that you have until um, a few months ago, um, I was attending a conference at Uelma where you were a speaker and Uelma is a, a conference for elementary school librarians. And I went to a session that you spoke at um, with another um, author, Christian Heidegger, about horror stories for kids. And I, when I was looking through the conference pamphlet to begin with the materials, I was, I starred that one because I was like, of all of the ones I need to go to, that's the one I have to go to um, because I have had so many kids. I can't even tell you so many kids in the last year who are constantly telling, asking me, where are your scary stories? I mean, and I've been doing this job for about five years, but I've really noticed this uptick 
And the thing I loved about your presentation was you kind of explained why you think that this is such a, a big deal now. And I just felt like my podcast listeners might also like to hear about that. So thank you for, for coming on. Um, you say, you know, spooky stories aren't for Halloween anymore. They are year round. And I hope so. Yeah, that'd be great for me. <laughs> One of the things I wrote down that you um, said in your presentation was that spooky stories equal bravery practice. Right. And I thought that I circled that and thought it was so interesting. I was wondering if you could explain that. What do you mean by that? Sure. So when I say that spooky stories are bravery practice, and I share this, I visit lots of elementary schools and middle schools and talk to kids. And that's one of the themes that I share with kids when I visit elementary schools is that reading spooky stories is a great way to practice being brave. So if we wanted to, the way I explain it to kids is I'll ask them, I'll say, if you wanted to get good at basketball, what would you have to do first? And they all yell out practice. And I say, if you wanted to get good at playing the piano, what would you have to do first? And they all say practice. And if you wanted to get good at gymnastics, what would you have to do first? And they all say practice. And then I say, so what do you need to do if you want to be brave? And this like light bulb tends to come on when I say that. They're like, oh, I guess if you want to get good at being brave, you need to practice. But the problem with that is in order to practice bravery, there we don't want to purposefully put ourselves in dangerous situations. But one thing that we've learned, one benefit of reading fiction is that we can transport ourselves into any number of complex social situations and we can live those experiences vicariously. And so reading spooky stories is a way for us to experience some difficult emotions that we might not want to experience in, in our normal day-to-day -day life. Um, emotions like anxiety, tension, fear. We might, experience these, we might experience these things when we're reading a spooky story, when we're reading a creepy story. And then what happens is our brain starts working on those emotions. You, feel, you read a spooky story, you feel a little bit of tension, a little bit of fear, and your brain says, this is something I got to figure out. And it starts figuring out how to navigate being afraid. And then you read another spooky story and your brain works on fear a little bit more. You read another spooky story, your brain works on being afraid a little bit more. And then when you encounter something in real life that gives you anxiety or tension or fear, your brain has practiced dealing with those emotions, navigating those complex emotions over and over and over again to the point that now you're more equipped to deal with those emotions when you encounter them in real life. Well, and so and if that, you get, go ahead. I'm please. sorry, I was just gonna interrupt and say, that was one of the things that you talked about right off the top was that it's kind of a terrifying time to be a kid, right? Yeah, it's a, and you know, you mentioned a minute ago that there has been an uptick in the last year in kids seeking out, at least from your observations in the library, right. kids seeking out spooky stories. And I've probably had dozens of school librarians tell me the exact same thing. Yeah. When they find out I write spooky stories for kids, they say, oh my gosh, I get asked for that all the time in the last year or two. So many yes. kids want to read spooky stories. And I think it's because kids are smart and they know what they need in their lives. And it's a terrifying time to be a kid, right? I mean, the pandemic is terrifying. We're approaching 1 million American deaths from the pandemic. And that means most kids in America today, they know somebody who's died of COVID. 
an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a mother, a father, a sibling. They know somebody who's died of COVID. And um, they know that there's a war going on in the Ukraine. And that's a terrifying thing. Um, They know that this is a big, scary world that we live in. And I think kids are smart. They know that if they're going to succeed here on planet Earth, they need to learn to navigate these fears. So when a kid comes into a library and says to a librarian or says to a teacher, what have you got that's scary? What have you got that, you know, where are your spooky books? I think what is really happening here is the kid is saying, I need, I've figured out I need to practice navigating these complex emotions. I need to get good at feeling anxiety. I need to get good at being afraid, right? The kid may not have the words to articulate that that's what's happening. And they might not even be aware consciously that that is what is happening. But I think that's what's happening. I think kids are reaching out for the kind of books that they know can heal them and that can fill their psychological gaps. And in 2022, sadly, I think uh, the kind of books that a lot of kids need to fill those psychological gaps are spooky books, scary books that can help them learn to navigate a complex, terrifying, stress-filled world. Well, you had a really interesting comment that I picked up on, which was that, during the apocalypse, there was some kind of, or sorry, during the pandemic, pandemic. we we could call the apocalypse. Pandemic, apocalypse, you know. <laughs> They're interchangeable, right? Sure. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that um, you shared some research about how horror fans who had, were really like tuned into the zombie apocalypse actually did pretty well during the pandemic. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there's a study that I encountered a few months ago. This was conducted by researchers at the University of Chicago, Pennsylvania State University, um, a university in Denmark, Aarhus, I'm sure I'm I'm slaughtering that, Aarhus (laughs) University in Denmark. And they wanted to examine whether exposure to horror did increase emotional resilience for people during the pandemic. I've got that study in front of me right now. I was prepared for this question. And uh, here's a direct quote from that study. It's titled, Pandemic Practice, Horror Fans and Morbidly Curious Individuals Are More Psychologically Resilient During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And the major conclusion of the study, here's a quote from it, exposure to frightening fictions allows audiences to practice effective coping strategies that can be beneficial in real world situations. And so there's, you know, there's science to support this. There's another researcher, a writer named Jonathan Gottschall, who's written a book called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. And I'll read something he says, "Um, we are attracted to fiction, Gottschall writes, not because of an evolutionary glitch, but because fiction is on the whole good for us. This is because human life, especially social life, is intensely complicated and the stakes are high. Fiction allows our brains to practice reacting to the kinds of challenges that are and always were most crucial to our success as a species. Mm. We spend so much time in fictional worlds, Jonathan Gottschall says, because fictional worlds are um, they're flight simulators. They're practice arenas for us to go and practice difficult, complex emotions, emotions like love and grief and um, 
loneliness and solitude and isolation and fear and anxiety and tension. Fiction gives us avenues to explore these emotions. And the um, study that I started talking about, the pandemic practice study, sort of furthers this idea by saying, yes, in exact situations, such as the pandemic, right, in exact social complexities and in current events, fiction can be a tool which helps us uh, navigate these complex situations. And the um, same, those same researchers discovered the people who ended up with the kind of biggest benefit from um, the biggest benefit in the pandemic, having the, the greatest emotional resilience from exposure to fiction, were people who'd had a lot of exposure to like zombie apocalypse literature and alien <laughs> invasion literature, which oh, wow. in a way makes a perfect kind of sense, right? You've spent all this time reading zombie apocalypse literature, watching zombie apocalypse movies. And then when the pandemic hits, you're sort of like, yeah, I've been there, done that. <laughs> right? You've been there and done that in fiction over and over again. And it turns out those people were more emotionally resilient throughout the pandemic, through the difficulties in the early days of the pandemic. They handled it better than people who had not had that same exposure to those fictions because they practiced it over and over and over again. And I think the implications of this research to our children are just huge. Yeah. Well, I love that emphasis on the power of a story because I fully, fully believe that, that a story can have so much impact on a kid. And I, I can see some parents saying right now, well, wait a second, there's, there's a fine line between letting my kid practice being scared and actually scaring my kids so much that they cannot fall asleep now and they're terrified. Right. So, and I have to say, having read most of your uh, work, I feel like you strike such a great balance because there's a lot of whimsy and there's a lot of familiarity in your stories that they don't, they're not crazy out there. They, they just kind of have a little bit of a horror twist to sort of the natural world, which I found great. And I read a few um, with my sixth grade daughter and um, there was like one where she was like, wow, that was, that was really creepy. And then there were others where we laughed and, you know, so I think what, what you have here is great, like you say, for that middle grade age, but like, how would a parent know, like, okay, this, like, if they look at something and go, that looks like it would scare me, I'm certainly not going to pass that along to my child. Like, when is, where's that line between enough and too much? Yeah, well, um, a couple things I'll, I'll say in response to that. Well, first, thanks for noticing that I'm not interested in blood and gore. Yes. Because I'm not <laughs> interested in blood and gore. And um, the kind of, sometimes, you know, when people find out I'm a horror writer. Right. A uh, woman who lives in my neighborhood found out last week that I write horror for children. And before she even knew anything about my books, looked at me and said, why on earth would anybody want that kind of thing in their head? You know, it kind of came <laughs> after me a little bit. And I was kind of like, whoa, whoa, I write stories about spooky Pop-Tarts. Let's slow down here. <laughs> right. um, so, but a couple of things I want to say uh, about this question, how scary is too scary for kids? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we respect children and that we respect the power of their imaginations. Children are really great self-censorers. Mm. And kids know what's good for them and they know what's bad for them. And so I think a kid has, they have the opportunity to stop reading anything at any time they want. 
right? They can, if, if a book is too scary for them, they'll put it down and say, oh, that's not for me right now. And we don't need to worry that the kids are going to get so drawn into this, so drawn into this book. I didn't read Stephen King when I was seven years old because right. I wasn't interested in Stephen King when I was seven years old. And if I had tried to read Stephen King when I was seven years old, I probably wouldn't have gotten very far Yeah, because I wouldn't have been interested. I would have self-censored. Right. Um, that I would have self-censored. And another thing I want to say is we can also trust kids because their imaginations are a protective force. Reading a book is not like going to the movies. When you go to the movies, you turn over your imaginative power completely to the movie's director. How much blood there is on the, on the screen, um, how, how dark the setting is, how, um, how terrifying the screams of the captured people are. All of this is turned over to somebody else. And your imagination has no control when you're reading a book, there's no way as an author that I can render every detail of a scene. I give you a couple of brush strokes, and then I allow your imagination to fill in the gaps. Children's imaginations will fill in the gaps in ways that they are prepared for, in ways that they can handle. And so there might be a scene. So the, the ickiest thing I think I've ever written, I have a story about a, a boy who wants to make a handprint in wet cement. You've read yeah, this one? I, I have. He, he presses his hand into wet cement. And then when he goes to lift his hand out, he gets stuck. And the, the cement refuses to let go of his hand and the night gets colder and darker. And he realizes he's gonna get frostbite and freeze to death if he doesn't do something. And it ends with him having to like cut off his own hand, like a, like a, you know, like a fox having to gnaw off its own foot in a trap kind of thing. Right. And um, I write it, I try to write it with as much humor as I possibly can. I try to make sure I, I, I sort of gloss over any painful or suffering kind of moments and allow the narrator to come to terms with this very, very quickly in order to make this not a horrible thing. But I also recognize that that moment, different kids are going to render it differently in their heads, right? Some kids are going to render that moment more graphically than others. I don't write it graphically. I give a brush stroke or two and then move on to kind of dark humor as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. um, different kids are going to render that scene differently in their heads. And they're going to render it in a way that they are prepared for. And so we can trust kids' imaginations to take care of them. The imagination is not a dangerous thing. It's a protective thing, right? The imagination keeps us safe. And so um, maybe a third thing I'll say about kids is this. I, I want to respect kids enough to scare, to, to scare them. I want to respect kids enough to trust that they are not delicate teacups who are going to shatter at the first sign of anything spooky or scary or unusual. Children are tough, right? Look what our kids have endured over the last couple of years. Our kids are incredibly tough. And I never want to be a writer who condescends to children, right? right? I, I need, as, as, as a children's author, I need to embrace as much respect for my audience as I possibly can. 
And that includes respecting their toughness, their bravery, their resilience. And my stories can only work if I refuse to condescend to children. They're not delicate teacups. They're strong. They've endured a great deal. And I mean, I mean, look at what our kids, look at what our kids have endured with the pandemic and with kind of the racial pain that has been in our country over the past few years and the brink of World War III. And sometimes then we, we, we look at kids and say, well, can you handle a story about a haunted paper towel dispenser? <laughs> of course they can. Look at what else they've endured, right? We don't need to, we don't need to condescend to them. They're, yeah. they're tough. They can take it. Well, and it, you can't call it a scary story if it's not going to scare them, because I can guarantee if I give a kid a story and say, hey, this is scary, and they come back to me and say, that wasn't scary, they're going to be asking, well, what's really scary? What what do you have next for me? You know, so right. I, I totally agree with you. you. You have to respect your audience. I love how you're you're doing that. I want to ask, like, why scary stories for you? Like, why this genre? Why did you choose to combine middle grade this age with horror you know was it something that you know from your own life that attracted you to this this genre um i think it i think it goes back to my first i first fell in love with stories when i was when i was a kid uh kind of when i was about this age when i was like seven eight nine years old that's kind of when i just fell head over heels in love with literature and stories and the library, um, the library at my elementary school, Southland Elementary School in Riverton, Utah, mm -hmm. became this sort of oasis for me. Um, I fell in love with the Twilight Zone. My dad and I used to watch the Twilight Zone. I, I remember to this day watching a Twilight Zone episode with my father. It stars, you might know this one, it stars William Shatner and he's on an airplane. And every time he looks out the window, he sees a monster on the airplane wing tearing at the engines, pulling wires, ripping metal. And he tries to get other people to look out the window and see this monster. And anytime anyone else looks out the window, it's gone. And so no one believes poor William Shatner as, <laughs> and I just, I remember watching that when I was like, I don't know, like seven years old. I remember watching that with my father and being blown away at what stories could make us feel at what stories could do uh, to us, what they could do for us. And I fell in love with the Twilight Zone. I became the biggest like eight-year-old Twilight Zone fan the world has ever seen. <laughs> I started watching other creepy things like The Outer Limits. Steven Spielberg had a, a, for two seasons, he had a show called Amazing Stories that was chock full of spooky, twisted, bizarre, kind of horror sorts of things. It's a, it's a series. I might be the only person on earth who remembers that series. But for <laughs> me, it was very vivid when I was a kid. And then um, when I learned I could get spooky stories out of books, I was just blown away. Alvin Schwartz's scary stories to tell in the bar, tell in the dark was like a staple of my childhood. And um, something I remember discovering in the library, something wicked this way comes by Ray Bradbury. Oh, I was going to say, I, I get a sense of that in your stories. Oh my gosh, that's flattering. Because that is to this day, one of the scariest books I have read. And it, it's not one that people often think of, I think with horror, but it is so creepy. It is so creepy. Yeah. And it is so chilling. 
And um, I just, I, I fell in love with that book when I was a kid. And so um, when, when I start, when, when I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, this is the kind of thing that I wrote. You know, I wrote my own little Twilight Zone episodes and I did this kind of thing when I was a kid. And when I got to college, as you can imagine, um, the, the academic world favors a certain kind of story. And it's not the kind of story you find in books that glow in the dark typically, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not. And so for a while, um, my academic training kind of conditioned me to turn my back on spooky stories for kids. And I kind of had to relearn what I loved about literature, why I fell in love with it. And um, I, was, uh, I was asked in an, an ecclesiastical, uh, in an ecclesiastical capacity, I was asked to um, work as a scoutmaster, an assistant scoutmaster, something I probably would not have volunteered to do had I lived to be a thousand years old. <laughs> but out of a sense of duty, I agreed. I think and, many um, can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so out of a sense of duty, I agree. To, now, I like camping and I like young people. I just had some problems with the, you know, institution of scouting itself. <laughs> um, but so I, I went camping with these kids and started reading them stories around the campfire at night when we would go camping. And I was reminded why I fell in love with story to begin with. And then I started writing my own kind of spooky stories for kids and I couldn't stop. I got, I got hooked back into this writing spooky stories for kids as something that I was just really passionate about and really interested in. So I guess um, that's a really long answer. The short answer, why do I write spooky stories for children? The short answer is it's fun. <laughs> right? I guess that's really what I'm saying in too many words. It's fun and I like it. So that's why I do it. Well, I definitely want to come back to that in a second, because um, as a someone who's trying to get at people's careers, that element of fun as part of your career, I think is really important. Um, but I want to know, did you, so you, you started writing, you started writing as a kid. Yeah. And then at some point in your academic life, did you say, actually, I really want to go for this. I'm going to see if I can get published. Yeah, so I was a student at um, I was a student at BYU. I was an English major, and I took a few creative writing classes when I was at BYU. And I liked teaching, and I knew that I wanted to teach. And I kind of hoped that along the way I could write and I could maybe build a career as a writer. And so when it was time to go to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to try. I knew I wanted to become a college professor. So I had to go to graduate school. So when it was time to decide what to do about graduate school, um, I decided to get a master's of fine arts degree in creative writing and try to go all in with being a writer. And so I kind of made that decision when I was a student at BYU to really go for it, mm -hmm. um, to really try. And it didn't happen quickly. I, I finished my master's of fine arts degree in creative writing in 2001. And then I published a handful of short stories in literary journals. These were stories for adults. So I kind of had this academic bias for a certain kind of story, contemporary literary fiction for adults. So I spent a lot of time trying to write contemporary literary fiction for adults. Um, I edited a literary journal for a couple of years. I 
got uh, I got my job at BYU Idaho, and then eventually, after you know, after years of trying to write for adults, was sort of sucked back into this original love of story that I had, and started writing for kids. And that's kind of that's kind of what I was put here to do, right? That's the kind of story I was put here to tell. Um, I'm a children's author. And one of my big regrets is that I spent a lot of time not being a children's author. Um, so I'm glad that I'm back where I'm supposed to be, back where I'm most comfortable. Yes. Do you feel like getting your MFA was necessary for you to write the kind of stories that you write? Like is for, for someone who's considering, you know, being an, a published author, would you recommend that? Um, I would. I think that you know, if, you're, if your goal is to get an MFA so that you can enter the workforce and make lots of money, well, don't go get an MFA. <laughs> but what an MFA gives you is two really valuable things. One, it gives you time to write. Mm. So my MFA was a three-year program. It gave me three years to focus just on my craft and to, to um, get classes on how to set a scene, how to establish mood, why setting is important, and how to reveal it, um, characterization, plot structure, all those kinds of things are crucial to where I am as a writer today. And so that time to write and focus on my craft was huge in my development as a writer. And the second thing that an MFA gave me that is just valuable was a um, exposure to a community of writers. There were a whole bunch of other people who wanted to be writers and they became my friends and we read each other's stuff and we gave each other feedback and support. And so uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for my years in my MFA program at Old Dominion University and um, grateful to my teachers and what they taught me when I was there. There are plenty of people who become published writers without getting an MFA. So, I mean, the question, is it necessary? I don't know that it's necessary, but it, it's, it's enormously beneficial if your goal is to develop your craft. Okay, that's really good to know. So now that you teach at BYUI, are you teaching um, like in the MFA program or are you teaching creative writing to undergrad students? And, and what do your classes focus on? We don't, we don't have any graduate programs at BYU-Idaho at the moment. So uh, I teach undergraduates. This semester, I'm teaching, I'm teaching only creative writing. So I'm teaching beginning creative writing this semester. Sometimes I teach advanced creative writing. Sometimes I teach like freshman composition as well. Occasionally, I get a literature class. Um, but kind of my focus is teaching creative writing. Okay. And do you ever focus on um, horror with them? Well, I try to focus my classes on general principles of creative writing that apply to whatever my students want to write. I'm not in the business of like cultivating horror writers and sending them <laughs> into the world. If right. my students want to write horror, and some of them do, I think I have some particular uh, lessons for them that I can that I can help them with. But I don't want my class to be the kind of class that. Um, has a bias towards a certain kind of story, mm. right? One of, one of the things I lament about my time in higher education is that my, my, that my time in higher education, there was a bias towards a certain kind of story. And then I had to kind of unlearn that bias to be the mm. writer that I was meant to be. Mm, good point. And so I try really hard in my classes 
not to have a bias towards a certain kind of story. I tell my students, if you're here to write romance, if you're here to write fantasy, if you're here to write science fiction, if you're here to write contemporary literary fiction, if you're here to write for adults, if you're here to write for kids, if you're here to write young adult literature, whatever it is you're here to write, I'm going to talk about um, sound principles of creative writing that apply to whatever genre you are interested in. I'm not, I'm not in the business of creating a bunch of mini-me's. I want my students to become the kind of writer that they were meant to be, not the kind of writer I think they should be. Right. So are you living your professional dream? Is this kind of what you always wanted to do, the combination of teaching and writing? Or um, are there some other you know, professional goals that you'd still love to hit? Um, both. Can I say I want to do yeah. both? Of, so both of those things. I I mean I I am incredibly lucky and I know it. There are a lot of people who want to be English professors who don't get the opportunity, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people who want to be published authors who don't get the opportunity. And um, and these people, I'm not smarter than them. I'm not I'm not better than them. I'm not harder working than them. I'm I, I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. So much of this is timing. So much of this is meeting the right people at the right time, getting your stuff seen by an editor who just so happens to believe in what you're doing. And so I feel I feel incredibly lucky and incredibly grateful um, every day that I get to do what I do. And so am I living my professional dream? Yes, absolutely. I am living my professional dream. Are there other things I want to do? Yes, also, absolutely. There are other things I want to do. I want to Um, there's been a story in the back of my head that's been needling away at me probably for the last 15 years. There's this story that I want to write, um, historical fiction. I want to write it in verse. I want to write a novel in verse. And um, I've got to get on it. This this thing won't leave me alone. And so um, I think that every writer has I think every writer I've ever met has things that they've done and they want to continue pushing themselves, right? Can I, can I branch out into a, a different genre? Am I capable of that? Um, we write because we don't, we write because we have things that we want to say and there, there's more that I want to say. Right. That's a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what advice do you have for people who also want to write? Um, biggest advice I would give to people who want to write, um, maybe three pieces of advice. These are things I tell my students at BYU-Idaho regularly. My first piece of advice is this. If you want to be a writer, you have to be a reader, just an avid, avid reader of not just the classics. Those are great. Read the classics for sure. But also you got to read contemporary literature. Sometimes in my students, uh, sometimes in my classes up here, I'll have a student who 22 years old, like a 22 year old young man in my class turns in a story, I read it, and it sounds like it was written by like an 85 year old British man. Because (laughs) the only books the student has ever read are like, Charles Dickens and Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville. And it's great that the student is reading those things, but we don't really expect 22-year-old young men to sound like Herman Melville <laughs> right. in this day and age. And th- that's kind of a problem because the literary conversation has evolved since 1880. And I tell my students, you've got to read contemporary literature. You need to have 10 favorite writers 
who are not dead. Right? <laughs> I love that. Ten favorite writers who are not dead yet. That you read their stuff, you're looking forward to their next book coming out. You need you, you need to you need to do that. Uh, that's my first piece of advice. Read contemporary literature, familiarize yourself with the literary conversation going on today. My second piece of advice is this. Set a ridiculously achievable daily writing goal. So if you want to be a writer, I, I've seen so many students who burn out because they say, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write 3,000 words a day. And I think, no, you're not. Right. You're not going to write 3,000 words a day. You're going to write 3,000 words a day for four days. <laughs> and then... And then you're going to write 1,500 words and feel bad about yourself because you didn't get to 3,000. And then after two weeks, you're going to give up because right. that's not an achievable goal, right? Yeah. So I, I tell my students, it, look at your life. Look at what you've got going on. Do you, do you have a young family? Do you, do you have a job? How many classes are you taking? What's a ridiculously achievable writing goal that you can, that you can do? Maybe it's, I'm going to write 50 words a day. Okay, great. Write 50 words a day. Um, so set, set a goal that you can achieve so that writing feels like an accomplishment to you, not abusive, not like self-abuse, right? That you, right. You, you, it needs to not feel like you fail. Like a chore. You sit down to write. Right. Um, my third piece of advice is this. Go ahead and give yourself permission to be a bad writer. That's okay. Um, I'll, another thing I... I talk about when I visit schools or with my own students, I'll say, if you want to be a good basketball player, what do you have to be first? A bad basketball player. And you have to be a bad basketball player for a really long time before you get to be a good one. You have to be a bad piano player for a really long time before you're going to get to be a good one. But for some reason, when we sit down to write, we think, okay, I need to be brilliant and I need to be brilliant right now. You're not going to be brilliant right now. You're going to be bad. Or you're going to be bad and you're probably going to be bad for a really long time. And if you can't allow yourself to just continue being bad and putting the next sentence on the page and putting the next sentence on the page and, and moving forward, you're never going to get good. The way you get good is by amassing 10,000 pages. You got to write 10,000 pages before you're going to start writing good pages. So you might, might as well start writing those pages now. Right. I think that's such great advice, not only for writing, but just life, right? I mean, if you want to try something, you're probably going to be bad at it at first, but that's okay. You have to keep, you have to just keep at it. And I, I do think I see that a lot with myself and my own kids and their friends and our contemporaries. Sometimes we just immediately expect to be good and, and we're not, and, and then we get discouraged. Right. And so I, um, sometimes my students will come in to my creative writing class. I'll give them an assignment to write like a short story or something. And they'll come in and they'll say, oh, Professor Allen, I wrote the worst short story ever. And I'll say, awesome, Great. fantastic. You wrote a short story. You should be so proud of yourself. You like wrote a bit, had a beginning and a middle and an end and characters and everything. And they'll be like, but it's terrible. And I'm like, but hooray for you. Yeah. You did it right. You move forward. And we need to embrace kind of a healthier creative mindset, a lot of us, mm. rather than demanding perfection of ourselves. Um, Julia Cameron says uh, something to the effect that progress, not perfection, is what we should demand of ourselves. 
Right. Like, don't demand perfection of yourself. Demand progress. Right. I love that. Is there something that would um, surprise people about being an author that they wouldn't necessarily think of? Um, how much revision we do. Mm. I yeah. So the amount of revision that I do. When I explain it to people, it usually blows their mind. I have a picture of, I saved of my second book, every draft that I printed of my book, I would print a draft, make a bunch of revisions on it, and then I stacked it on my desk in my office. And at the end of writing my book, I took a picture of it, and it's like three feet high. (laughs) Wow. And these are not drafts where I'm going through and like putting in commas. These are drafts where I'm like deleting characters, rewriting the ending, combining two characters into one, changing it from third person point of view to first person point of view. I mean, these are major revisions that I'm doing again and again and again. And are these, can I interrupt? Are these like self-directed edits or are these coming right from your editor? Um, Most of them are self-directed edits. So most, I don't usually even show things to other people until I've been through lots of revisions. So what I'll do is I'll write a story and make it as good as I can. Maybe I'll take it through 10 drafts. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a fourth grade, there's a fourth grade teacher in Rex up here in Rexburg, Idaho named Trisha Gaylor, who lets me come to her class and read drafts of my stories to her students. Oh, wow. So I'll go to her class and I'll read the kids a draft of my story and I'll pay really close attention to like, if they laugh at the joke. Um, if they look bored, if they look scared, and I'll note, I'll make notes as I'm reading to them kind of what their reaction is. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back to my office and I'll try to fix the parts where they looked bored and I'll try to rewrite the jokes that they didn't laugh at. And um, <laughs> so that's kind of my first feedback loop right there. And once I feel like I've got it good enough that it's satisfying to kids, then I'll send it to my agent. He'll give me a couple rounds of feedback and then it goes to my editor and my editor will give me multiple rounds of feedback. Um, We'll do multiple drafts with my editor and um, it's just the process is is so much bigger than most people understand. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's more than I even realized. The short story format is really not a common one with kids. Was that hard for you to kind of sell that to, you know, you've now got two books that are yeah. our compilations of short stories. Yeah. Um, conventional wisdom in publishing is don't try to publish short stories, right? That's yeah. what everyone will tell you is um, publish a novel. Publishers want novels, not collections of short stories. And that's true. So this is another reason I feel sort of doubly lucky yeah. that I was able to publish a collection of short stories. But one of the reasons that I kind of went against that conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in helping kids who are on the fence about reading mm-hmm. to be less on the fence about reading. Yeah. Right. I'm kind of a proselyte for literature. I'm trying to <laughs> me too. The reading yes. is where it's at, you know. I think most librarians are, yeah. But I think that I think that there are a lot of kids today that if you hand them a 250-page book and say, try this, you'll love it, they're immediately intimidated. Yeah. Right. That's intimidating. 250 pages, that's long. I don't know if I can do this. They may have had some some bad experiences with books people have 
recommended to them in the past, and they might be skeptical. But I think that if you say to a kid, um, hey, here's a book that, um, why don't you try the first short story? It's seven pages. And right. if you like it, read the second one. And if you it's like it, read the third one. And it doesn't have to feel like, like it really pains me when I hear kids say of a book, I tried to read that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I tried to read that. Because in embedded in that sentence is a feeling of failure. Right. I tried, but I failed. I tried, but I failed. I tried to read that book, but I couldn't get through it. And I want, I'm, I'm passionate about short story collections because they give kids off ramps, mm. right? So instead of saying, I tried to read that, a kid can say, oh, I read three of those stories. And that feels like an accomplishment, right? There's success built into that statement. I read three of those stories. Or I think they also, short story collections give kids lots of opportunities to succeed. Yeah, I love that. You read that. one short story, you like it. Maybe you read the second one, you read the third one, and then you're looking at the book going, I'm like a third the way through this thing already. I could maybe actually do this. Yeah. And so I think that short story collections, I wish we had more of them out there because I think they're really great for what we sometimes call reluctant readers. Mm -hmm. They give them opportunities to succeed. They're also really great for classroom read-alouds. And I would say also for parent-child read-alouds, like that's what I did with my daughter with your book. I knew I was going to interview you, wanted to read some of those and wanted to try them out on her. And so I just pulled, you know, a story up, you know, every other night or something and we read them together and, and they're short. So, you know, it's a 10 to 15 minute bedtime story. You're done. You know, if you don't come back to it, that's okay, but you can go on to the next one if you want. Right. So, yeah. So I kind of went consciously against the conventional publishing wisdom mm -hmm. that don't, right? If your goal is to publish, write a novel, not a collection of short stories. But I felt like my goal is not to just publish. My goal is to publish books that will encourage non-readers right. to become readers. And what kind of books do I believe will best accomplish that? And so that's why I committed to the short story format. And, you know, I've just noticed it with my students that the scary stories to tell in the dark, that compilation of short stories, yeah. those are so popular. So I, I think there's definitely a market for that. And I love all the reasons that you've given. I think they're spot on, you know, to help kids uh, get into that. Is there anything you wish you had known before you started this path of writing for middle grade readers? Oh my goodness, what do I wish? There's so much I wish I would have known. Um, my, first, my first lesson in my creative writing classes uh, at BYU-Idaho is what I wish I had known. Oh, is that right? All these years ago, <laughs> yeah. Things I wish I had known. I think that um, maybe things I wish I had known or things I wish I had done differently. I wish I had not been such a perfectionist. Mm. I wish I had known that it's... Um, okay to just kind of play in the sandbox just to mess around with words put them on the page play around have fun goof off write a whole bunch of pages that you know are never going to see the light of day just to figure some stuff out right mm -hmm. just to figure out how to how to how to mess around with paragraph breaks 
or how to how to reveal a joke on the page. I wanted to be good so fast, right? I wanted to be good right now that sometimes my writing time didn't feel like play. Mm-hmm. And if it if it doesn't feel fun to me, it's certainly not going to feel fun to kids, right? If it feels like work to me, it's going to feel like, if it feels like work to the writer, I think it's going to feel like work to the reader. And that, that goes back to your idea that this, this should be fun. I mean, you said you, you started writing kids stories because it was fun Yeah, and that's what propels you, right? Right. And so it's really important to just kind of, um, to work from a place of joy. I wish I had, I don't know, I wish I had sort of tattooed that sentence on the inside of my heart when I started all of this. Make sure I'm working from a place of joy, right? Work from a place of joy. Because some days I didn't. Some days I worked from a place of expectation, or I worked from a place of self-doubt, or I worked from a place of fear, right? Fear that I wasn't good enough, fear that I would never put a book into the world. And when I forgot about all of that stuff, and I just started working from a place of joy, and I started trying to make books that could be a gift to kids, that's, that's when things started to kind of work for me. Once I learned how to write from a place of joy, things got a lot better. Things got a lot easier. My work got stronger. Do you have um, a favorite story? One of your own? Oh, one of my own? Yeah. What, oh. what, like, which one do you like the most? Um, if I had to pick one, and I, I don't know that it's necessarily the most elegantly crafted story I've written. I don't know if it's, it's not the creepiest story that I've written, but my first story in my first book is called Vanishers. It's about two boys named Jacob. One spells his name J-A-C-O-B and one spells his name J-A-K-O-B. Yes. And, um, this is the first horror story that I wrote for children. And I wrote it for two real children. I told you I was a, a scoutmaster. Yeah. There were two boys in my scout troop named Jacob, one spelled J-A-C-O-B, one spelled J-A-K-O-B. They were actually my backyard neighbors. Their houses butted <laughs> up against my house in the backyard. So I watched these two kids grow up. I'd yeah. be in my backyard mowing my lawn and I'd see Jacob and Jacob playing with each other, jumping on the trampoline, throwing a football. They kind of looked alike. They acted alike. They had the same name spelled one letter off. And that was creepy and weird. <laughs> and so I thought somebody needs to do something about that. So the first story that I wrote that kind of got me back into writing creepy stories for kids was this story about these two boys named Jacob, J-A-C-O-B and J-A-K-O-B. And I wrote it as a gift for real children like actual kids in my neighborhood. I remember the day I finished the first draft of it. I printed it off of my computer, drove home. Um, I had two copies that I printed and I drove to these boys' homes, knocked on their door and I gave them this story that I wrote, which is a crazy thing to do now that I look back at it. One of the boys totally gets ravaged by a monster. (laughs) I bet they loved it. They loved it. Their parents (laughs) looked at me funny after that, but they loved it. I really liked it too. I liked that one a lot. Yeah. And I'd have to, I'd probably have to say that's the story that helped me figure out writing could be, it didn't have to be about me and my dreams and my ambitions and my hopes for my career. It could be a gift that I gave to other people. I could turn my writing into a gift. 
uh, to children and I could try to make it a good gift, right? I want my writing to be a gift and I want it to be a good gift. And vanishers taught, writing vanishers taught me that. And so if I had to pick a favorite story, that's the one I would pick in mind. Mm, I love that. I personally loved um, The Substitute. I thought that was amazing because I didn't see at the end uh, that coming. <laughs> oh, it's twisty. There's it a is twist. Very, we it won't is spoil very it for twisty. anybody, but it's no. twisty. And I also loved The Perfect Girl. I thought that was so clever. Oh, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I love this quote from, um, let's see, where is it from the Wall Street Journal about your work short and sharp the stories in out to get you mingle the ordinary with the supernatural in a way that will spook and gratify readers. And that's exactly what I thought of in that there's so much of the ordinary in these stories that that the spooky kind of takes you off guard, which I, I love. I, and I think kids love that as well, but. Yeah, that's sort of my thing. I sort of start with something that's recognizable in a yes. child's life, like right. an ordinary kind of mundane thing that's very recognizable in a kid's life. Washing your hand in the boys' bathroom at the, <laughs> at the school, right? Or having to awkwardly prepare for the middle school Valentine's dance. Right. Or, you know, the, the mundane, having to eat food that your mom says you have to eat, even though you hate it. So I usually start by thinking back to my own childhood and like, what are the kind of mundane experiences I remember from my childhood? And then I just try to find a way to let it spin out of control. Yes. Introduce absolutely. some sort of phantasmagoric element that just turns that ordinary everyday childlike experience into something just creepy and bizarre. Well, and your um, illustrator is amazing. They, they Sarah fit, Coleman, yeah. Yes, she fit those um, illustrations, fit those stories so well, but they're not like they do, they are a little bit whimsical still. So they fit that age, but they're also creepy. Sarah's amazing. Sarah has illustrated more than 400 book covers, I believe. She did the wow. cover for the 50th anniversary edition of To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh my goodness. She's, if you've wandered through a library, you have seen Sarah's work. She's, she's just prolific and amazing. And she and I feel, we feel really lucky. She really loves spooky stuff. I really love spooky stuff. The fact that our publisher brought us together feels to us kind of like this this really um, fortuitous pairing. We, we love working together. And her, her work is, I mean, I've got it hanging up all over my office right now. She's just fantastic. I'm really lucky that she has illustrated my work. Josh, this has been such a great interview. I really appreciate your time. And I wanted to ask a final question, more focused on your career, but what would your last piece of advice be for anybody about finding their life's work? Um, so I've already quoted Julia Cameron once in this uh, interview, but I really love her kind of creative philosophy. And maybe my final piece of advice, there's a quote hanging up on my office door from her that says this, in order to have self-expression, we must first have a self to express, right? In order to have self-expression, we must first have a self to express. And so... I feel like my art is born out of self-expression 
But in order to have self-expression, I first have to have a self. I have to have things that I'm committed to. I have to have a value system that I'm confident about. I have to have passions. I tell my students, be nerdy. And when, when I tell them to be nerdy, what I mean is be passionate about things, right? Be nerdy enough that you are super passionate about something. Um, sports fans, they're just nerds who really like a certain game. Right? There's not there's not that big of a difference between somebody who plays like Dungeons and Dragons every weekend and somebody who watches football every weekend. You're both just really nerdy about a game and they're just different games. Right. And so an athlete is just a sports nerd, right? That's all an athlete is. I tell this to sixth graders and they love it. The, the athletes, not so much, but everybody else loves it. Um, and so I, I think that figure out what your passions are and just dive deep right? Dive deep, deep into those passions. If, if you're going to have self-expression, you first have to have a self to express. And so you need to embrace that nerdiness, that passion for whatever it is that, that, that you're committed to. And for me, that just happens to be monsters for children. So, <laughs> so anything it. will work, I guess. Josh, thank you so much. I wish you the best. And I can't wait to uh, read more of your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for hosting me. Thanks for joining me today on Career Chat. Any links we talked about will be in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at Career Chat Pod. And if you like this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast. See you next time.